This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast, or as we're bringing you the second episode of the day. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Sophia Gaston, who is Head of Foreign Policy at the think tank Policy Exchange. And today we're going to be giving a bit more focus on Rishi Sunak's diplomacy as the Prime Minister goes to San Diego. It's also the day that the Integrated Review, an update of that strategy document, has been published. Now, Sophia, can you go through some of the headline announcements there? I mean, the thing that's grabbing most headlines is the fact that Rishi Sunak has not declared China a threat, but limited the language to describing it as a challenge. I think the important thing is that this is a refresh of the review. It's not a complete overhaul of the review. And part of the reason to describe it as a refresh was because there is a feeling that the original integrated review, which was published two years ago, actually that the foundations of that were pretty sound and and that framework uh, still remains a useful kind of guiding instrument through which foreign policy is being made. That said, I think it's been a pretty extraordinary two years in terms of the geopolitical context. So I think while the origins of the refresh actually came from a very political place, it was in the kind of scrum of the Conservative Party leadership contest. I think there is an institutional acceptance that just the events have been so extraordinary that it, it was warranted to go back and look at that framework and see if it needed to be rejigged at all. The main things that have been looked at again are the UK's approach to China, to Russia and Ukraine, to Europe, and the big kind of energy resilience piece, bringing that together with the climate change story. So those are the kind of four areas that were really opened at the beginning. There has also been some sort of strengthening of language around science and tech, mm. uh, which I think is something that the PM has been persuaded on. He he is convinced now that that should be a really central kind of organizing principle for government. But But all in all, I think the thing that is notable about the IR refresh is the fact that it is being integrated with the budget announcement, which means that it is much more focused on kind of tangible strategic commitments than IR1 was. And also the integration with the AUKUS announcement, Mm. which is going to be taking up the lion's share of the defense um, funding commitment that will accompany the integrated review and will also be a prism through which we kind of express the Indo-Pacific tilt. Mm. And Katie, just focusing on China for now, the IR establishes a so-called National Protective Security Authority, which is an MI5 body that would advise businesses and universities on espionage. It would also be doubling the funding for so-called China capability across government, so language skills, knowledge training, that kind of stuff. But as I mentioned at the beginning, it is not calling China a threat. What has the reaction in the party been like so far? I think pretty predictable. (laughs) So I've just come from Parliament. Ian Duncan Smith asked a question on this, and he is probably the China hawk who's been most vocal about the uh, idea China should be labelled as a threat. Obviously, Rishi Sunak used that language in the Tory leadership contest, but as tends to happen in most leadership contests, people will often lean towards what they think the base wants to hear, and then they do actually succeed to a position of you know having to focus on the voters at large rather than the membership. They tone down their positions, and I think you can see that here. 
Ian Jenkinson for Ask for Clarity, because of course it talks about the threat China could pose to Taiwan. Mm. Um, so they're saying, well, which is it? Is China a threat in that sense? And and pressed, and this was to James Cleverly, the foreign secretary who was speaking. So I think you can see a little bit of unease. I don't think the China hawks are all united in the sense I think China has to be called a threat. Ultimately, the position Rishi Sunak is trying to take on China is one by which they're saying, well, judge us in terms of our actions. And that's when we'll try and be tough, as opposed to, I think, I think some in number 10 effectively think pointlessly waste political capital if you call China a threat in the integrated review, because it doesn't lead to much in terms of a strategic decision, but it does manage to annoy mm. Beijing considerably. So if you think, for example, about uh, how the UK government moved to stop the Chinese taking over the microchip factory recently, that was one where I think you can say, well, that is actually putting some of, uh, you know, the action of being tough in China mm. in, into a tangible way, whereas calling it a threat, it would be symbolic, but I don't think Rishi Sunak sees that as a more important thing. He's much more look at actions, not words. I think also the UK is effectively going where America is. <laughs> and if America starts going further, you'd expect the UK to follow suit. But as a general rule, I think see what uh, our main Western allies are doing and don't expect Rishi Sunak to be going further. I think Liz Truss, his predecessor, was more comfortable trying to lead the conversation or, or you know, go further and see if others follow. But that's not where this current prime minister is. Yeah, it's really interesting. But I, as I noticed on Coffee House today, the Chinese are unlikely to be happy even with this slightly more constructive approach to the IR because of actions such as blocking the overtaking of uh, the Newport wafer fab, and that's which are still annoying. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's good for Rishi Sunak too. I mean, if, if China was welcoming the update to the integrated review, I think there'd be a sense that the government was doing something wrong. It's just a question of how far you go while going there. I, th- I think by not using a language, this isn't kowtowing to China point. Yeah, absolutely. And Sophia, there's an interesting piece of polling that Policy Exchange has commissioned on China and on AUKUS uh, that's out today. Can you talk us through some of the key findings there? Yes, so I uh, designed a survey uh, which I was able to put to the field over the weekend with my uh, research partners at Opinion. And uh, we wanted something really fresh off the press for just for today. I just got the results back on Sunday evening. So it's it's very up to the minute. The survey was looking at uh, views about AUKUS, which, as I mentioned, is forming a pretty central part of the integrated review. That's partly because AUKUS was not in view in, in the original integrated review and has been one of the single most tangible defense and foreign policy initiatives that the government has undertaken since. But uh, it's also that AUKUS is represents not just this sort of enormous submarine project, which will be announced imminently, but also the second pillar of that is all around technological co-creation, cooperation, which sounds a bit wishy-washy, but really what this is, is quite fundamental to not just our national security, but our economic competitiveness moving forward. And it's quite an extraordinary situation where we're going to be kind of all coming together pulling sovereignty, all putting our heads together, the best and brightest across, you know, these three closest of allies and, you know, really working together to achieve a kind of collective resilience where we can actually genuinely compete with big global superpowers like China. And I think, you know, really a kind of objective here is is to prevent another situation like Huawei happening again, where there's just simply no Western credible alternative Mm. in terms of cost efficiency and speed to get us there. So that's going to be looking at things like AI and 
uh, cyber and hypersonics and all of these sorts of things. The survey that I put into the field this just past weekend shows that the British people are absolutely sold on the narratives around AUKUS. They are invested in the project. They think it's going to make us safer. They think it's going to make us more competitive. And a majority also think that it will successfully act as a deterrent against future Chinese aggression in the Indo-Pacific. And of course, AUKUS, um, all leaders are very at pains to avoid ever explicitly talking about China when we're talking mm. about this project. But I think it's quite patently obvious that it's it's a very um, strong implicit focus of that. I should also say that two other bits of, of the polling which are relevant to the integrated review, the first one is is asking the question about how confident the British people are that the government can actually protect them mm. from the threats that China does pose. I think very strikingly only 6% of the British people don't think that there are any threats coming from China. So that's pretty extraordinary. But but only 36% of the British people are confident in the government being able to, to shield them from these threats from China, which I think is a number that will probably send alarm bells in number 10. Also, we find that uh, country is pretty divided on whether or not we should be sending hard power support into the Indo-Pacific if, for example, China made a move on Taiwan. So I think, you know, in many ways it shows that the government does have the British people on on side and and that a lot of the um, narratives and messages are coming through in terms of these sort of big projects like AUKUS. British people love us working closely with our allies, but they're not quite sure that we have all the tools in place Mm. um, to actually sort of keep us safe. And I think, you know, just... Katie was referring to some of the kind of political debate that goes on in Westminster. There's been a lot of political campaigning around China in Westminster, you know, and I think the British people are receiving all these messages and and they often don't hear a huge amount from the government on China. So I think in many ways it just shows there's a bit of a leadership and education gap about some of these issues. You think, you think where, where backbenchers are a bit more vocal than often the government is on China? Yeah, I mean, I think if you've got people, you know, backbench MPs, you know, and other figures in Westminster sort of singing from the rooftops and and being very loud about their and vocal about their views on China, but you have government sort of pursuing a sort of quiet, pragmatic approach behind the scenes, that's not always an even fight in, in the battle of public opinion. And Katie, finally, Rishi Sunak has had quite an international few days, having come back from Paris just on Friday. How well do you think he's doing in the diplomatic sphere? I think number 10 are pretty happy. And I also do think there's a series of factors recently, which mean when you speak to Tory MPs and not just ministers, who can be quite critical despite being ministers, but tend to, as a general rule, you know, say things are going swimmingly well, at least if you bump into them briefly. Um, I think amongst quite a few Tory MPs who are usually quite quick to say, oh, aren't things awful? There's no hope. There's definitely been a bit of a mood shift recently. And I think that's down to a couple of factors. But I think in politics, you just need one or two things to go right. And then you can build some momentum and other things start to fall into that narrative. Just as if you have one thing go wrong, suddenly, you know, (laughs) things that could be read in two different ways are seen negatively. And I think Rishi Sunak's probably good few weeks began with the protocol deal, the Windsor framework, which at the moment only has one public Tory rebel, and that is Boris Johnson. Mm. And no one has so far joined Boris Johnson, which I think does speak volumes. I would suspect you will get some more rebels from the European Research Group. But I would say 
it feels as though the air's been taken out of it. It doesn't feel... I remember before the uh, Windsor Framework, we were talking about doing one of our lists on coffee, coffee house, you know, saying this number of people coming out against. And James Hill, my colleague, had it all ready to go. And then we just had no one to put on it. <laughs> and so that never went live. And now we could do it and just say Boris Johnson. And, and of course... I, look, I think the ELG and the DUP, there will be some criticism to come, but it's just not been that moment. And I think since then, the fact that Rishi Sunak has uh, managed to you know, keep the party together on a Brexit issue, won some praise from unlikely places. And there's then been a series of other events. And I think it meant that the UK Franco summit on Friday, one in which, you know, the first for five years was seen in quite a positive way, fresh mm. after the illegal migration bill and actually pitching the UK Franco summit as something which helps small boats. After a few years in which I think it's been more of a tendency amongst UK Tory leaders to <laughs> criticise the French and play into this war of words than work together, has worked not all Tory MPs like the idea of paying hundreds of millions of pounds to, to the French, but they do all think that small boats are such an issue that if it works, you have to try it. Um, so I think... The world stage is playing quite well into the new narrative about Rishi Sunak, which is actually that he's doing an okay job. Mm. And therefore you saw some of the diplomacy. And there's an interesting Wall Street Journal op-ed last week, uh, which, you know, a few people in government were mentioning to me. And that was saying, you know, Britain is getting back on track. Now, it's just one article, but I do think after a year in which... Britain has often appeared in the international press, but not for the reasons most people would desire it to be. It just is a sign, actually, that um, that we are entering, I think, a bit of a, a new chapter. Um, and it is something which is, yes, I think, internationally, but um, perhaps if you have no more on this than me, it's making you know an impact. But also domestically, I think it's just adding to a sense that Rishi Sunak is... <laughs> is not just someone who's trying to guide the party in this damage limitation way to the next election when they lose. Actually, there's a bit more of a point to his premiership. Yeah, and I think that um, in many ways, this marathon week of Windsor Framework, Small Boats Bill, UK-France Summit, AUKUS Announcement, Integrated Review Launch, and the budget, which, you know, has obviously affected all of our sleep and sanity to some degree. But I think it tells quite an interesting story about how this government thinks and works. And there is a kind of coherent narrative that emerges from that, which is in part sort of balancing this sort of security and openness paradigm, this kind of sovereignty cooperation paradigm. It also shows, you know, this is a government that understands that domestic and international policymaking are really coming to together much more cohesively and I think the other big thing is this is a government that's sort of running its foreign policy with an eye to the treasury everything has to be kind of costed we you know deliver on our commitments and I think for someone like Rishi who you know has obviously come from city and and so on I think for him that that is an essential aspect of how he thinks about British soft power and attractiveness as a partner and as a place to invest is that we are consistent, that we are reliable, that we deliver on and, and do what we're going to say we, we're going to do. So in, in a way, I think it starts to tell quite a coherent story. Mm. Um, and in many ways, I would also say just on a political level, I feel like he's gaining a bit of confidence and momentum through having these kind of wins. And what's unusual about that 
is we often talk about politicians these days sort of um, pursuing small target strategies and trying to sort of keep head down. The, the less visible they are, the less room for, um, you know, gaffes and missteps and so on. I actually think in, a, in an interesting way here, um, the PM is finding that the sort of more visible he is and the more announcements that they're making, they're actually increasing confidence, not just like you know, in the Conservative Party and, and this government, but I think in the UK uh, as a global actor. Sophia and Katie, thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a rating or a review and why not tell a friend about it too.